In America today, is our goal to be right or to make a better country? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we respond to the January 6th upheaval in Washington, D.C. We hadn't planned to make this podcast, but the recent events wouldn't let us ignore them. We're going to play for you a conversation we had with Jack Moscow. We invited him back because we didn't know anyone with a better perspective on what's been happening. Right. Jack is a co-founder of the Writers Collective in New York. He has an extensive background in management training, strategic planning, and political consulting. His commentary on political events was previously posted on bloggingforutopia.com and Dispatches from Utopia. He is the author of Why Not Utopia, a political platform in search of a party, and he writes bi-weekly, untrammeled, and entertaining blog, Nobody Asked Me But I'll Tell You Anyhow, and Dispatches from the Planet Utopia. Here's our conversation with Jack Moscow. So, Jack Moscow, welcome back. Glad to have you again. Glad to be here. Hi, Jack. Hey, Ken. Super. So, Jack, we're going to play a clip from episode 20 where you made your prediction about what was going to happen after the election, after the, the November election. If Trump loses, and as I say, the power elite throw him under the bus and Biden is elected, and assuming that the Democrats have a sweep, they win more seats in the House, they recapture the Senate, and Biden and Kamala are the president and vice president, I think you will see a new version of the Civil War. The Civil War was fought on a battlefield of clearly defined territory. What I think you'll see this time is a non-territorial civil war. I would think you will see all of the Ku Klux Klan types, wherever they are, killing and murdering. They'll kill nine people in a church. They'll blow up the Oklahoma City building. They'll blow up and kill uh, the Jews in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, in the daycare center in, in California. They'll assassinate doctors who uh, want to offer abortions. The killing will go on unabated. And the question is whether or not people will see this as systemic or each killing will be an aberration. Each killing is, well, that's one individual loader. That's one individual unhappy people person. And I don't know that even if Biden and Harris are able to say, no, this is systemic, white terrorism is real, and we have to end it. If Biden is elected, I don't know what will happen, except it won't be pretty. Then this will be your time to gloat. <laughs> so this is, yeah, that's a good, good, good way to put it. Yeah, you, is, get to, you get to, I told you so. Yeah, so. If I've been wrong 98 times out of 100, am I still allowed to gloat for the two times I'm right? Absolutely. Everybody else does. Why should you be any different? Uh, so that's right. Is this, this, debacle, I don't know what to call it. I mean, some people call it a coup attempt. Some people call it a riot on January 6th. Is this what you expected? You're asking me. Yes, I'm asking you. Very definitely. That the, sta the stated reason for the, from the Trump supporters for taking up arms against their government was that it was a stolen election, 
And I think the unstated reason was that they're fed up. They want liberty. They want freedom from what they consider to be an oppressive government. And they're just completely dissatisfied with their situation and their system. Could you comment on that? Well, I agree with you. Coming from my own left-wing background, I was raised to believe that governments are oppressive by definition. And uh, the people who uh, we now call right-wing insurrectionists are people who have been oppressed by the government. And for the most part, that has been a liberal, not quite social democratic government. And uh, they've been angry for for a hundred years. And from my perspective, with justification. Now, like everything else, they take out their anger in ways, uh, not just the the violence, but they find scapegoats. Instead of blaming uh, what I would blame, which is capitalism or human nature, they blame blacks, they blame communists, they blame Jews. Immigrants. That's a dangerous road to go down. Yeah, isn't it though? And the danger, of course, has translated into some people being murdered. The police officer who the capital police officer was just doing his job, got his his head bashed in with a fire extinguisher. Some other people died from unknown causes, we don't know. But the woman, the one woman Trump supporter was shot breaking into the Capitol. She, in my opinion, died for no real reason that I can see. I mean, whatever the cause was that she thought she was fighting for was a lie, in my opinion. I feel very sad that she had to die. But from all accounts, she was delusional. She was a QAnon conspirator, and she believed in the Pizzagate conspiracy and all that stuff. I feel bad for anybody who got sucked into this. I don't feel bad for the brutish people that destroyed property and did horrible things and and killed the police officer. I don't I don't feel I, I, they deserve whatever retribution they're going to get in my opinion, but I feel bad for the ones that have been duped. How do you see these folks, Jack? How do you see these Trump supporters that stormed the Capitol? Taking a deep breath because it will literally take me 5 hours to answer that question. I'll try to answer it as briefly as I can. Okay. Just judging from my own personal experience in terms of how I was raised, they're not delusional in the com- in the way we use the word. They have very strong beliefs, and the stronger that belief is, the more you are impelled to act upon it. You know, you go back to Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil. Mm-hmm. If you meet these people in a bar and they don't know your political background and you don't know theirs, you'll have a great conversation with most of them. When it gets into politics, it begins to veer off to some extent. But the reason I object to delusionalism is, uh, and I'm pulling now on my own personal life history, but again, I'm 91 and I'm going back to when I was 10 years old. So clearly, my memory of that is bare bones, and it's been fleshed out over the years by my reading. But in 1930s, the Communist Party was all out against Adolf Hitler and the Germans. 
And Hitler and Russia signed a non-aggression pact in 1939. And I swear the ink wasn't drying on the paper before the Communist Party changed its position. And every single communist did. Um, now, this is 1939. I'm what? 10 years old. How much of it can I remember? Yeah. Uh, it's only my later readings that, that got me into that. Now, when Stalin went in, uh, became our ally, the Communist Party uh, became acceptable to the U.S. government. And Earl Browder, who was the Communist Party leader, was actually had been in jail for his anti-Roosevelt war effort. You know, he was opposing the war as it was the Communist Party. And Roosevelt released him as a gesture to Molotov, who was coming over to see him. Keep this background in mind. The Communist Party says, um, okay, the situation on the ground has changed. We're no longer opposed to this as a capitalist war. This is a war to end fascism. At the same time, there's a group called Trotskyists. I, I say Trotskyites, I don't know, who are communists under followers of Leon Trotsky. They continued to uh, oppose our getting into the war. And even after the Japanese attacked us in Pearl Harbor, they were saying things like, we shouldn't be here, we shouldn't get into this war. The Smith Act was created, and all of these guys were jailed for sedition. The Communist Party supported their going to jail because they were all in on the war. Now, one of the Communist Party leaders, I can't remember his name, Anyhow, he was at the trial, and he said, we need to be careful to make sure that the Trotskyites are exposed, but at the same time, the Smith Act isn't used at a later date to jail progressives. Okay? Now, he, he, he knew this, but nobody heard him in the party. And, of course, they all, in, by the 1950s, that same Smith Act was what put them all in jail. Now... I'm jumping. 1939, I'm 10 years old. 1948, I'm 17 or 18 years old. I joined the party. I joined the party because it was fighting for peace and democracy and racial justice. I have no real recollection of that. I haven't yet read Orwell. And in fact, at that time, when Orwell was publishing, because he was a part of the Trotskyite uh, anti-communist faction, the party was denouncing him. And of course, now all the left-wingers are supporting him. He was brilliant, you know, except when he wasn't brilliant. So to go back to your point, I am not only unsympathetic to, I think I understand very clearly where these people are coming from. They are fighting for liberty. The fact that uh, some idiot told them we stole the election and they believe it, hell, I, I believe in all kinds of nonsense. Didn't mean that my ideas weren't founded in my reality. So I'm very unhappy with what's happening to them. Now, again, the ones who translated rhetoric into action, that's another story. You know, in, into violence. Uh, action, action I, oh, I'm okay with, right. but into violence. But yeah. I would be willing to bet that 90% of the people at that rally were not performing or even thinking about performing actionable ideas, except rhetorically. I had an interesting conversation. Permit me to just digress for a minute. 
I know a young kid who's in the Canadian military, and uh, as part of their training, they do riot control. And by the way, he had access to Russian TV, French TV, German TV, and British TV while the riots were going on. So he's seeing everything. Now, I thought when um, the Capitol Police opened up the barriers, this was proof of their conspiracy to let the, the insurrectionists in. This is what the young military kid told me. He said, no, what we study is this. At the head of any mob, riotous mob of any kind, including a peaceful one, are the ones with a tendency to be violent. And what happens is that their tendency to be violent carries along with it the less violent. So what we try to do is we try to isolate them. And the way we do that is called dispersal and diversion. We open up the gates to let people disperse so that they are not as under the, not under the direct control of the real actionable people. And I experienced this, but didn't realize it during the 1960s. I went down with my kids um, to protest the war in Vietnam. And I couldn't help but notice that uh, on the streets, on the sidewalk, there were garbage cans, all kinds of barricades to prevent us from spilling over and doing damage to the property right across from us. After about an hour or two, I got tired. I'm older than them. I said, hey, kids, I'm leaving. And I walk over to the barricade and I walk alongside it, but I'm still inside the barricade. And I come to a place where the barricade is open. And what they were doing was dispersing the crowd. Mm. So let me interrupt you one one second, just to add one thing to this. What you're saying is fascinating, by the way. I, I'm, I, I like it a lot. What I heard was that many of the Capitol Police opened the gates and allowed people who had badges to come in because many of them were police and firefighters and people from other cities with badges. And the cops said, oh, you're a cop, come on in. Not thinking, oh, you're a cop, but you're also a rioter. You're also a member of a militia. You're also going to come in here and trash the place. So that was another reason. I'm not disputing what you're saying, but that was a reason that I heard that they were allowed in. And there are a lot of... There are a lot of Trumpers who are police, or police who are Trumpers. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. And I just want to, again, delve a little bit deeper into history. I know you're well aware that the slave patrols were the originators of our police force. And in the South, I don't know what percentage, whether it's 50% or 99% of police were members of the KKK and similar groups or as we would say, fellow travelers. They were virulently racist, and those attitudes carried over. I think what is not as well known is that for a long time, right-wing elements throughout the country fostered uh, and promoted having their, their, their people join the police forces. And an inordinate amount of policemen, and we're not idealistic people trying to, you know, protect society. 
they came predisposed with racist ideas, with anti-communist ideas, anti-radical ideas, call it what you will. Whether or not the particular policeman that opened up the gate was sympathetic or following the dispersal rule, I think is one of those human interest stories that doesn't fully take into account, as we like to say, the actual conditions on the ground. Well, I heard this quote, and I've, I've actually heard it more than once, but th- this is the, the longer version of it. This is a, from a police officer who was on the scene, and he said, that was a heavily trained group of militia terrorists that attacked us, said the officer who has been with the department for more than a decade. They had radios. We found them. They had two-way communicators and earpieces. They had bear spray. They had flashbangs. They were prepared. They strategically put two IEDs, pipe bombs, in two different locations. These guys were military trained. A lot of them were former military, the veterans said, referring to two suspected pipe bombs that were found outside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee. So not only did we have cops... But we had military, uh, militias, people with training and people who had a strategy. They were, they were prepared. They set the pipe bombs as a, dis- as a distraction, as a diversion, so that the cops and SWAT teams would rush to wherever the, the bombs exploded, opening up passages for them to get into the Capitol. Did you hear that? Is this something you're aware of? Well, just think back, uh, it's now almost 60 years, to the posse commentators. These were people who were armed, who were training. They were out of the Midwest. Then go to the militias and think of the name, militia. Mm -hmm. I married my wife in Flint, Michigan, and I was living there in the 1949, 1953, somewhere, I don't remember. But the militia started in Flint, Michigan. Militia, they went into the woods. They were training weekends and every time they got a chance with guns to protect themselves from an oppressive government. The guy who bombed the Oklahoma City um, Federal Building, Tim Maffei, was a member of the Michigan militia. These militias were springing up all over the country and our ruling elite ignored them deliberately. And when everything happened, he said, oh, well, this is one individual loner. This is one psychopath. And the FBI under Edgar Hoover, who was investigating communists from 1920 on and couldn't even find it in his heart to investigate the mafia, which he claimed didn't exist, none of them did anything about these people. And of course, like everything else, now these people came back to bite them and they're complaining. And, oh, we've got to arrest them. Oh, we've got to put them in jail. Oh, they're terrible. And, you know, my attitude is, where the hell were you for the last 60 years when they were your people? This is all fascinating what you're saying, but let's double back and talk a little bit about what we think is wrong, what, what Ken and I as cultural critics think is wrong. We're going to play for you a clip of Jamie Arndt from episode 13. Jamie talks about uh, Ernest Becker's way of evaluating the success of a culture. 
To what extent does a cultural system do a few things? To what extent does it provide for the psychological needs of its members? To what extent does it give those people in the culture a sense of meaning and the possibility for a sense of value? And to what extent does it do that while minimizing the costs for those outside the cultural system and for future generations? You know, Americans enjoy some of the highest rates of depression across the world and other forms of mental illness. To what extent is everybody getting access to this as a viable system of meaning? That's a pretty traditional Becker 101. And I think that comes from birth and death of meaning. That's the first place I read that. And it was it was startling to me that someone would take that high view of, of it. I'd never heard it put quite like that before. Yeah, he's indicting the whole American society in this. Well, before he gets to doing that, he lays out a sort of a measuring stick by which you would by which you would judge a culture. Right, a framework. I had never even thought of that before. Right, exactly. Uh, neither had I before. Well, we got into it with Kirby Fowles so many years ago, but right, but we're looking at our culture now in terms of what Becker wrote back in 1973. And he's saying then that we had high rates of depression. And you look at the the numbers now, and depression, stress, anxiety, the situation across our culture is, it's hardly ideal. And, and we're looking at this from you know, from this perspective, from this Becker perspective, and we're saying something is wrong. Something's wrong with our society. Something is wrong with the culture that is not defending us against death anxiety. And people may not understand that intellectually, but intuitively they know something is desperately wrong. That's my take on it. And I think that's that's what Becker would be saying if he were alive today. Do you agree with that, Jack? I know you've read Ernest Becker several times. Do you, do you agree with that idea? I agree with it 100%. And since I thought of it before he wrote it, I claim he <laughs> plagiarized my thoughts. You should take credit for it. <laughs> this is what was Marx was all about. Yeah. Marx talked about alienation. Marxist criticism of our culture was exactly that. What Becker did, which was so profoundly uh, important, was he took this materialistic kind of, well, you know, there's capitalism, that means exploitation, and human beings are perfectible. And he added a dimension that is striking in its significance for all of us. And when you take what Ken, you just uh, read and what you're talking about, Steve, it's so obvious that scapegoating is a form of denying death. It's so obvious. I, I don't like to cite authority except as a form of, hey, modestly, I didn't think of this before. And I hate it when people say, well, the proof that I'm right is Mark said it. You know? Yeah, right. Uh, and the proof that I'm right is Becker said it. But you give them credit because you want to say, hey, you know, it wasn't my original idea. And again, I would say that 90% of the people at that rally, rally fell into a Becker 
Yeah. How do you say it? Dakarian? Yeah, that's, that's good. A, that's how we say it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Perfectly. This was their way of trying to deny death. Because to yeah. them, what's going on in the society is our society is dying. You know, and just translate from the individual to the collective, and you get that result. And you're, you're absolutely right. Scapegoating is a big part of this. I mean, the, this corporate media perspective that let's blame Trump for everything. I mean, is Trump, the in your mind, is Trump the problem or the symptom? He's both. He's the problem because he was so damned good at what he does. But Which is lying. In the sense that, as I say, the times create the man. I mean, Trump was saying these things in 1964, 68. Did I tell you about Woody Guthrie? Tell uh, Ken, yeah, this is good. Woody Guthrie was living in New York City in the 40s and 50s, and he was living in a Trump-owned building, <laughs> and, and, and they barred blacks. And Woody Guthrie actually wrote a song about old man Trump, Fred and his racist housing policies. And wow. an outfit named The Village Voice, which was a counter, the first counterculture one of note, they reamed Trump Jr., Donald Trump, from one end of New York City to the other as a con man, a crook, a racist. And my wife happened to work when she came back, when we came back from Canada to live in New York City, she wound up in uh, Mario Cuomo's cabinet her boss was the director or the secretary for housing and urban development. And they sued Donald Trump for discriminatory practices in all of his buildings. His defender and lawyer was Roy Cohn. Perfect. And he lost yeah. the case, but in typical, in typical Trump fashion, he claimed victory. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this guy, we knew him forever, but the times at that time didn't raise him up the way he was, uh, did uh, 20 or 30 years later. And remember, back in that period, uh, five young black kids were arrested for raping a white woman in Central Park. A jogger, I think it was, right? Jogger, yeah. yeah. And um, they all confessed, and uh, they all got sent to jail. They were kids. They were they were young kids. They were young kids. 15, yeah. 16. Yeah, if that. Everybody yeah. who knew anything knew that they were innocent, knew that the confession was coerced, and Trump took out a full-page ad saying they should all go to jail and be killed. And even after they were exonerated 10 years later by DNA, he still said, no, they were guilty. Yeah, kill them. But that yeah. didn't gain any traction until the recession of 2008, and all of those kinds of things took place. So to answer your question, he's the problem, and we're the cause. And I thought Ken's depiction the other day, or recently, was that Trump is a pinata, which I thought was a wonderful image. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the scapegoat, and, and you're right. He lied. He's told 25,000 lies. He's got an obvious personality disorder. 70,000 psychologists signed an article or letter, whatever it was, printed in Psychology Today back in 2016, saying that he had a severe personality disorder. People are saying he's a malignant narcissist, that he's a sociopath. So in that regard, the man himself 
is loathsome. But that we don't need to dwell on that because everyone's reported on that and talked about that. I'm much more interested in the people that he has deceived. But they may be deceived on what's wrong. Like they believe it's the immigrants. They believe it's the minorities. They believe that, that the election was stolen from them. But underneath all that, deep down, they know something is desperately wrong. And what we've talked about, what Ken and I have talked about with others, are that it's economic inequality and systemic corruption that's at the heart of the problem that Trump supporters have experienced and and gravitated to the one person in politics who was saying, I feel your pain. I'm going to do something about it. Now, he lied. He didn't do anything for them, but they believed it. And four years later, they still believe it and are loyal to him, I think, because they had nowhere else to go. They still have no one in American politics, with the exception maybe of Bernie Sanders, who's saying, I understand you're upset. I understand why. And I've got something to help you. Nobody else Biden, the rest of them just give that lip service. Am I way off here, or do you? Are we on the same page? Um, I agree with you, but you know that classic. I agree with you, but yeah. first uh-huh. of all, I am so glad that you won't be able to publish this uh, podcast for a few days because my newsletter is coming out tomorrow, and I'm saying some of these things. Very good, but I distracted myself from my thought. You agree with him, but. No, what, what what were you saying? <laughs> that economic inequality and the, and a corrupt system are at the heart of so many of the problems we're talking about, that the Trump supporters are experiencing. They may not know it intellectually, but they know it intuitively. Yeah, what I was going to say is I think they are feeling their own pain. They're not feeling any sense of economic inequality per se. Uh, again, they probably are on a subconscious level. But all of them are hurting individually, and it's inchoate, it's unformed. They can't articulate. Well, a lot of them can articulate it. I take that back. Go back to Bacon's Rebellion. The poor whites rebelled against the governor because uh, he was giving favors to his wealthy friends, and they were out in the cold. And in their desperation, they actually allied with the blacks, free and slave. Now, They were fighting economic inequality, but they also wanted to kill all the Indians. Now, how do you how do you deal with this kind of compartmentalization that people have? Right. It's very difficult. I'll I'll pose a question to you. Trump said, in effect, when he was running, I'm going to rebuild the cities. I'm going to rebuild our infrastructure. What might have happened if the congressional Democrats, the day after he got elected, say, said, hey, Let's get together because we're in total agreement with you and let's come up with a plan to rebuild the cities and offer to listen to him on that. As I recall, they did that. The House Democrats did that. They proposed an infrastructure bill that got absolutely nowhere in the Senate, as I recall. It got absolutely nowhere in the House either, but it got nowhere because they made no effort to – it was their bill and the Republicans felt left out of it. Now, I, I hear what you're saying, and I probably have to amend that. It might not have made any difference what the progressives did. 
the House, Demo House Republicans and the House Senate weren't going to go anywhere. And Trump being Trump was going to only go where he wanted to go anyhow. So let me just back up a second and say that when I say that the problem is economic inequality and, a, and systemic corruption, I'm talking about a plutocracy. And a plutocracy in which the billionaire class controls what's happening in Washington, controls our so-called elected representatives, our so-called public servants. And they're controlling them through their campaign contributions, but also through a form of coercion that if you don't go along, you get primaried and you lose your power. And that economic inequality that results in a plutocracy is bad for the whole society. That We've talked about this. Wilkinson and Pickett's The Spirit Level have pointed out that economic inequality is bad for your health. It raises infant mortality. It reduces life expectancy. It causes a host of problems, social problems, like we said, depression, anxiety, but also suicide, addictions of all kinds. So when you look at the heartland, the people who have suffered the most from the policies of the last 40 or more years, going back to the late 70s, early 80s, and, and on, and yes, in 2008, when the whole thing collapsed, like a house of cards, when you look at the heartland, the people that lost those manufacturing jobs, those good union jobs that were paying a very comfortable living wage, all those jobs that got shipped overseas, and the corporate entities that shipped them overseas got a tax break, and the CEOs that engineered it got bonuses, and the workers out there in Allentown and, and Flint and all those, those Rust Belt cities were left out in the cold. They went from making $68 an hour to $10 an hour if they got jobs at all. The kids are living in their basements. They have no future. The kids have, have master's degrees with, and can't get jobs. And they're looking at this saying, something is desperately wrong. And someone comes along and says, well, it's the immigrants. And, well, you know, build a wall. They're being lied to, and they know that the person that's lying to them is a game show host, and yet they know something is wrong, and he's the only one that's saying, yes, this is wrong, and I feel your pain, and I'm with you. That's what I understand to have happened in 2016. And why they're still loyal to him, because they have no one, nowhere else to go, as I said before. So when I talk about cultural, uh, I'm sorry, economic inequality, that's, that's what I meant by that. Yeah, there's another aspect to this, Steve, that we're leaving out. And I want to say it before we stop talking about the image of Trump as the pinata. Yeah. Because we were, um, everything that you said is true, but there's, there's a new technology that's never before existed in the history of humankind. And that is the internet and social media and these echo chambers that algorithms are programming what individual people hear because they've been gathering data. As you move through the world now, you're just, you're just giving, you're just spewing data and people are picking it up that everything you do has value to them now because it gives them a, a finer 
point on who they believe you to be. And based on that, they cater, their, they, they fine-tune the news, and I'm using big quotes around the word news, that you receive. And at a certain point, you're only hearing stuff that they know you already agree with. And if you have a strong opinion about something, they can whip you into a frenzy. Yeah. And, no, you're right. and, and it's those people that are whipped into a frenzy that then you use the word scapegoating, as we've been saying, and then you hold Trump up like a pinata, and everybody just wants to take a stick and take a big swing at it because they're Not putting every, all their well, frustrations on everybody on one. Everybody on one side is taking a stick at him. Yes, but everybody but the, on one side, everybody in that echo chamber. In that, yeah, in the left, in the liberal echo yes. chamber. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The right, they have their, they have a different view, which Jack has shown a light on. And just so you know, I mean, the left would like us to be killed for even suggesting that there could be another point of view here. I don't know. We are completely, we are completely violating the narratives on both sides, and you're not allowed to do that in the contemporary world. Yes, I. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a black and white world. There's two teams. Pick your team and don't violate the narrative that's yeah. the rules well jack do you see it that way uh absolutely um forgive my sense of humor if you have two jews in a room what do you have three opinions <laughs> so i come from a very disputatious tribe <laughs> very um, much I, I, I agree with everything you're saying and the problem of course is you can't in any one or two minutes, say everything that you are saying or want to say. This is, you know, there's, just can't be done. But I, I'm going to play around with this, and hopefully, Steve, you can edit it down so it doesn't take 20 hours and you capture the kernel of what I'm saying. Do my best. With all due respect to the Internet, which I couldn't agree with you more on, Ken, it has changed the nature of the game, and I think it may be changing the nature of our prefrontal lobe. I think you're right. Long before that, we had television. And long before that, we had just the press. And long before that, we had word of mouth. But from the beginning of our inception as a country, racism has been the foundational belief of our white society. And there has been an unceasing propaganda to scapegoat blacks as the fault of everything that is occurring. Now, I want to tell a joke, which goes like this. Cohen says to Goldberg, lend me $2,000. Now, that tells you how old the joke is. And Goldberg says, no. Cohen says, you wouldn't lend me $2,000. When you came to America, who sponsored you? He says, you did. When your son got married, who paid for the wedding? He says, you did. He said, when you wanted to go into business, who set you up? He says, you did. All this I did for you, and now you won't lend me $2,000? Everything you say is true, but what have you done for me lately? <laughs> now, I have told that joke, because it, that joke is also told between two Texans, and it's yeah, told right. between two Yankees. Yes. The Yankees don't take offense. The Texans don't take offense. The Jews do, because it fits a certain stereotype that anti-Semites yep. will respond to. So Jews are sensitive to the very same joke that dominant culture people are not. 
which doesn't stop you from telling it, of course. And not me, but it did get me barred from one nursing home that was run by Jewish uh, owners. Oh, oh man. <laughs> yeah, okay. good. And again, if I can talk about communication, who will bar you? I did a workshop on communication skills. This was so long ago that the term we used was abortion and anti-abortion. We hadn't gotten around to euphemisms like pro-choice and pro-life. So I'm teaching this course on communication, and I have a workbook that I wrote. And I said to the group, how many of you here are pro-abortion? Raise your hand. Group raised their hand. Say, you go over there. I say, uh, how many of you here are anti-abortion? Raise their hand. They go over there. I say, how many of you can see both sides of the issue? They raise that. I say, you go over there. And then I tell each group, I say, the group that you are pro-abortion, I want you to write down every reason you can think of that abortion should be outlawed. And I say to the group that is anti-abortion, I want you to write down every reason you can think of that abortion should be legal. And for those who can see both sides, I want you to write down everything on both sides. Well, I had occasion to do that exercise probably 15 or 20 times over the course of a year or so. Invariably, without exception, the anti-abortion group always came up with the shortest list. They just could not bring themselves to find all of the reasons for allowing abortion. The pro-abortion group came up slightly better. You're like, okay, they had a slightly longer list. It was only the group that could see both sides. Their list was bigger than both of them. And they had more reasons for, more reasons against. So what I'm looking at, as we discuss all this, what the hell is there about human nature? What makes some of us so closed-minded, some of us open-minded, some of us somewhere else? I don't know. And I look at all of these things, and are we a flawed species? You know, is this, despite everything we like to say about ourselves, maybe our theologians were right, that Satan took over when uh, she ate the apple, which is why we don't like women, and uh, (laughs) we have to live with the consequences. Actually, what I think is they were sociologists before their time. Steve and I were talking about that this morning, and I can't remember... My cousin Dave used to quote, I think it was Whitehead, but I'm not 100% sure. He said, out of timber as crooked as human nature, nothing really straight can ever be built. I never heard that, and I love it. Isn't it great? Yeah. We, We are a flawed species, and I think that the reasons are in the religions. We are fallen creatures. I think the reasons are, since we first set out on the world stage as an ape, not as a homo sapien. Yep. And we are hardwired. Now, we're hardwired both ways. We're hardwired to be hateful and predatory. And we're hardwired to be cooperative and loving. And that fits in with what you're saying. Uh, by the way, when we talk about television, and this is what I'm writing already, he wrote it. It'll be out tomorrow. Newton Minow, a social critic in 1968, said television is just one big wasteland. Right. I remember that quote. All of yeah. these guys in 1940s, we thought television was going to liberate humankind. We thought it was going to just spread education and humanity on a scale unheard of. And what it did is it gave us reality TV and the Fox News Network. 
So I like your quote, by the way. I, I'm hoping that I remember it because I'm definitely going to use it. I'll, uh, I'll, email, <laughs> I'll email it to you. Good. Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead, right? I'm not 100% sure, but I'll, I'll research the quote by Googling it, and then I'll find the author if I'm wrong. Yeah, you know what I'm doing lately is I, I remember almost everything, but then I go to uh, Wikipedia or to Google to confirm what I think I know. Right. I do this. The whole world does that now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, by the way, I contribute to, uh, to Wikipedia. I, I, I feel like I should. I feel like I should. I, they're my go-to for so many things. I, I contribute to a lot of individual politicians reluctantly, meaning, okay, but Wikipedia, I give unreservedly my $25 every so often. <laughs> so when we look at the division in America... And you're right. A lot of it has to do with human nature. It has to do with xenophobia. And we have teams, we have tribes, we have groups. I think of the football team that has a a head coach that's a pedophile, and they're still cheering for the team, even though the the head coach is, is a loathsome person. So you can cheer for the Trump team, even though you know Trump is a misogynistic, xenophobic, racist. But I think There is something to this criticism of the Trump team that claims that they are dominated, maybe not all, but dominated by white supremacists. And I know you've talked about this in the past, Jack, the white supremacy at the heart of this. You mentioned that Trump Jr., or not, well, Donald anyway, was called out for being a racist as early as the 60s. Oh, oh, the the father, yeah, the, yeah, the father, the the son. The father actually was in the Ku Klux Klan in the twenties. At least he was in the regalia. We don't know if he was an actual member, but yes, he was certainly photographed with them. So, what is the role of white supremacy in the Trump movement and this upheaval? Can I wander around that for a second? Sure. Part of the problem is how do you define racism? Is there a difference between racism and bigotry? Is there a difference between bigotry and prejudice? But I'll give you how I define it. White America in the North was rigidly segregated. You know, blacks lived in a specific community. They were redlined. They were segregated. I mean, when they went to Chicago, Daly actually built a city for them, a high-rise building, so they wouldn't spill over into white neighborhoods. When integration came about, As soon as any neighborhood became, depending on the neighbor, between 10 and 25% black, all the whites moved out. Were they racists? Were they bigots? Were they prejudiced? Were they just falling to the fear that blacks really are criminal? Was there some basis to the reality that black uh, black street crime, percentage-wise, is greater than white street crime? It's still infinitesimal. But take the same thing with schools. As soon as schools became integrated, whites pulled out from anywhere from the South with their Christian academies to New York City, which is more segregated today in a school system than it was during the pre-legislation. How do you define these people? My answer is it's fun and games to try to define them insofar as we're trying to understand human nature. But the fundamental fact is that white racism is the pervasive underlying structure of our society 
And no matter how incoherently or no matter how subconsciously whites buy into it, they buy into it. And that motivates them in every aspect of their life. And, and they can deny it up and down. The, by the way, there are people who are in interracial marriages. And it turns out that the white person still harbors, what do you call it, racist feelings. And virtually every liberal white person, and I include myself, the first thing you hear about when, when you hear of a crime is, uh, I wonder if it's black. You know, I hope it's yeah. not. And uh, why are they that way? Well, Mark, it's a reaction. Well, Malcolm Gladwell writes about mm-hmm. the, the implicit bias test. He has a, a Jamaican mother who is black. Mm-hmm. His father's a white Canadian. But he said when he took the implicit association test, it showed him to be racially biased. Right. And he said, how can it not be when you live, you grow up in this society, racially charged society? Now, every culture has xenophobia. Every culture has an in-group and out-group. If you're in Europe, in Germany, uh, it's Pakistanis or you know, people from the, the India or the Middle East. If you're in Turkey, it's who, – who do the Turks slaughter? The uh, Armenians. Armenians. It's the Armenians. It's not necessarily racial. But in this country, it's black and white and brown. And if you're black or brown, you're on, in, on that group and you're feared. In my experience, growing up in Baltimore, when blacks moved into the neighborhood, they were middle class. I remember in my church, there was a judge and lawyer, and they were probably better off than my family. And the same thing in my neighborhood. The kids down the street, their families were middle class. And there was no there was no fear of blacks who were in your class. But as you ventured into neighborhoods that were mired in poverty, and Baltimore, boy, poverty was intense. There are images burned into my brain of what Baltimore Street looked like back in those days. I think the fear there is what's going to happen to my neighborhood? What's going to happen when poverty comes into this way of life and it begins to deteriorate what we have? Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying that's the fear. And I'm not saying that it's inevitable. It's class, it's economics. But it's also this xenophobia that that's the other. Fear them. That's hardwired into us. And Ken was saying this to me, I don't know if it was today or yesterday or when it was, that... That goes back to when we were, like Jack said, when we were apes. Yes. Always fear the other. Yep. Yep. And that's, uh, that's what Jared Diamond writes about. You're walking through the forest and you come upon a stranger and you have to sit down and talk to him for an hour to figure out if you're related. And if you figure after an hour's conversation that he's not a relative and doesn't know any of your relatives, then one gets up and runs while the other one goes to kill him because that's how traditional people survived. And you say, well, okay, we're not like that. We have laws, but we have that same inclination to distrust the other and fear the other. 
Yeah, go ahead, Jack. No, continue. Yeah, so I'm just saying, I'm turning it back to you. Is some of that at work here? In- Absolutely. I want to do two, two or three things. First, we say poverty. Uh, we know this is a cause for a lot of crime. Poverty doesn't cause crime, but a percentage of people in poverty would resort to criminal activities. And since they don't have access to embezzlement and stock for, uh, insider trading, they rob and they steal. All stereotypes break down on an individual level. We understand that also. But what hasn't happened here is that poverty has been associated with Blacks. And instead of uh, that ending there, then becomes Blacks associated with crime. Now, when I lived in Flint, Michigan, I came in 19, probably 49, and the automobile boom was in full swing. The Japanese invasion hadn't taken place. And you could get a job like whatever. You know, if you could breathe, they took you. And a lot of people came into Flint from Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. That was part of the migratory pattern. Uh, Not a lot of Blacks came because their migratory pattern tends to be um, uh, out to the West Coast. So the Black population in Flint when I was there was still relatively small. It grew. But again, what we had was neighborhoods. Little Oklahoma, little Arkansas, little Missouri. And they were defined. And those neighborhoods and those whites were seen as more alcoholic, more prone to violence, and more prone to destroying a neighborhood than the good white Anglo-Saxon folks who had been living there. Now, let me take stereotypes further. Among the groups that came over were Ukrainians. So there was a little Ukrainian enclave, and there was a Czechoslovakian enclave. And you can say what you want about stereotypes. But 20 years later, the children of the Czechoslovak immigrants were all skilled tool and die makers or college graduates. And the Ukrainian kids were all drunkards and violent. <laughs> you know, and you can say, oh, boy, you know, there you go again. Stereotyping, although in this case, I'm stereotyping not by race. There was some truth to the stereotype. Yet one of the comrades I had in the Communist Party was the Ukrainian intellectual. Now, his father beat his mother every day of the week. His father was a drunken alcoholic. And one day, he and his son, my, my colleague and his son, who had by that time 20, grabbed the father, held him, and had the mother beat the hell out of him with a broomstick until he could barely live. Stereotypes have a basis in reality, but they are then carried on in a hundred thousand ways of propaganda. Well, unfortunately, the stereotype that you hear, that I hear and see on Facebook, is that Trump supporters are rednecks. And we've called them in the past flyover people and hillbillies and white trash. There's a dozen epithets. And I said to one on Facebook, and I shouldn't make this sound like I'm some sort of hero, but I just reacted when they, you know, he talked about rednecks. And I said, how is it that redneck is okay to say and red skin is not? And if you're the, you know, the Washington Redskins, well, that's politically incorrect. But if you're a Trump redneck, well, that's perfectly okay to categorize them that way. 
I find that seems like a little bit of a double standard, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot of the Trump supporters feel that Trump is their guy because he's anti-political correctness, which Ken and I have talked about before. Political correctness is, I, I think, incredibly offensive to tell someone you are incorrect. What does that mean? It is. It basically means you don't agree with our group. Yeah, exactly. You, you've, it's an in-group, out-group You're not thing. in my tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's perfectly okay to insult the other tribe yeah. with terms like flyover people. Oh, much worse than that. Yeah. If you get but, a couple of drinks into them. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jack. My daughter, uh, my middle daughter, Jackie, again, now we're talking 19... 19- uh, give or take, let's see, she's, I don't know, mid-60s, maybe late-60s. She belonged to a radical theater group that was doing like avant-garde theater. But anyhow, they toured the country, and they did a lot of shows in Appalachia. And, of course, they came in, uh, even though they were radical, with this preset notion of how they were going to civilize the natives. And my daughter said they were shocked to understand the depth of the humanity and intellectual understanding and awareness of these people, who, of course, also are the same people who in the coal mines fought in Harlan County and everywhere else and produced great music, you know, Appalachian music, American folk music, which came right out of England, Scots, Ireland. And she said they came to educate the natives. My daughter said they went away like in awe of these people. But, you know, we, again, from our intellectual snobbishness, put them down. One of the things I didn't realize, I'm reading a very interesting book right now called The Folk Singers and the Bureau. It's a history of how the FBI tracked all of the folk singers for being either communist or pro-communist, and a fascinating book. But what I didn't realize is how many of our folk singers from the left came from the Appalachian Mountains, came from Oklahoma, came from the Southwest, came from um, really rural working class roots with his strange alliance with Pete Seeger, who was, of course, a Harvard-educated intellectual, and half a dozen others. So again, our intellectual snobbishness is, just drives me crazy. I know I've teased myself that I'm anti-intellectual, and Steve, you've corrected me by saying, no, you're not. You read wildly. I guess what I should say is I'm against snobbishness, mm. against this okay. sense of tribal superiority that because I read Plato, I know more than you. Now, we're getting along on time here, but I want to get to this one point that you and I have talked about, and that is setting aside the Proud Boys, QAnon, the neo-Nazis, the KKK, and these other violent radicals in the Trump support camp. But it seems to me, from what we've been talking about, that those Trump supporters that turned out on January 6th have a lot in common with Black Lives Matter and the Occupy movement and the Tea Party before them and the Sanders supporters, the socialists, libertarians, anarchists, Antifa, they all are dissatisfied. In fact, I don't know anybody who is satisfied, who stands and says, 
oh, yeah, America, we're so much better than the Canadians. I don't know anybody who thinks that. Everyone seems to be dissatisfied. Everybody is in these different groups, but we can't seem to come together. The differences are so vast between the groups, between the left and the right. How do we how do we reunite the country if it ever was united? But it was in the 40s, in World War II. It was in the 50s. Maybe not the way we would like it to be, but there was more cohesion than we have now. What do you think about this, Jack? I'm going to make two comments and then turn it over to you. The 40s gave us a common enemy. Right. And therefore, we could subsume everything else. Now, let me see if I can get the two of you talking. Those people that are there are utopians. They want a better way of life, a utopian way of life. Hitler was a utopian. Stalin was a utopian. The fact that they created monstrous aberrations is beside the point. And I'm saying that your comment is absolutely correct, but I'm trying to take it to one step further. And again, when I, when I waver between Marx and Becker and my own particular take on life, those people there are crying out that we want a better way of life. And until we recognize that they want what we want, which is a better way of life, but we can't find the terminology or the actions to agree on what, how you get there and what it should look like. But that's what they want, utopia. You're right. I'm going to bow out. I've been talking a lot. I want to hear from you and Ken on that concept of mine because I'm writing about it. So I'll steal all of your ideas. <laughs> Feel free. Ken. Well, I'll start. I think if there's a way forward, we are trying to do it right here, right now. I think it starts with open minds and open hearts and discussion, honest discussion about what's wrong and what's right and what's the way forward. And I'm sorry, I listen to a lot of people who agree with that statement. And one of the things that they have said is that the way is not known right now. So if you're going to have an invitation to the discussion, you have to be open enough that you are not rigidly decided on major issues. And if you are rigidly decided, you need to remain silent because that's not probably the way. I like what Dan Lichty said about humility and gratitude in that we have to look at these folks who are on the other side of this chasm, who are taking up arms, who are pretty scary. Yeah. But we've got to say to them, look, we respect you. Yep. We value you. We depend. Yep. We depend upon you. We, we are humble in our self-evaluation. We don't hold ourselves up as the be-all and end-all. We're not 100% correct. We are humble and we're grateful. We're grateful to you. We know that we didn't build this world on our own. Hell, I don't know who built the street outside my house. I don't know the Japanese car makers who built my car, but I'm grateful to them. And I'm grateful to those people in the Midwest who grow our food and build the things in our factories and who contribute to this common project we call America. 
Dan made a beautiful statement when he said that part of humility is realizing, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Right. Yep. This was all handed to me. That's gratitude as well. Yes, absolutely. That's gratitude. Yep. Yeah. Jack, do you have anything anything to add here? Yeah, I, I have a problem with words like respect. It's hard for me to respect people who want to kill me. But to, to piggyback on what you're saying, do you guys remember, um, oh, what the hell is his name? He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Yes, Covey. 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 He had a real 15 minutes of fame. He really did. And um, his book was widely used. And I was a trainer. You were really? Huh? That's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, I went to any number of workshops on training in which he was cited as someone you should use. Now, I didn't like Covey because he accepted capitalism as a fundamental premise. Therefore, I saw everything that came from the book as being flawed. In other words, it's all self-help. And self-help, in my mind, was uh, of limited value. But Covey said one thing that I used over and over again, which was, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Exactly. And that to me is what you guys are saying. And while I, again, if I apply that, I have to say, why did Steve use the word respect? Why did uh, Ken use the word gratitude? Words I'm not comfortable with because they don't capture my feelings. But I can have a conversation with you by either suspending judgment about that word or saying, hey, for all I know, their word is more accurate than the one I'm using. Let's see if we can continue talking. But how do you get people? Again, I forget who said it. Oh, George Bonaccio. He said, um, I hate the capitalists for what they did to the working class. I hate the working class more for what they let be done to them. And I translated that into, I hate the liberals <laughs> because their goddamn self-centered egotism and snobbishness drives me crazy. And Ken, when you were talking about we need to talk, yeah, their version of talk is, Ken, you and I, let's talk so that uh, you'll come around to my point of view. Right, right. Yes. That's not what you want to be thinking. And while, Jack, I appreciate you being so... Uh open and uh, admit, admitting that. So since you do that, I'll add my thing. You want to know what a word is that makes me extremely uncomfortable? Utopian. Oh, oh no, you went there. Oh, my God. And, 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 you, have to, and you have to know that in my, in my writing now and in my book, what I say is we have to understand that Utopian is not only unreachable, but if we get there, we may very well find out we are the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I use utopia as a catch-all word because I don't want to use socialism. I don't want to use communism. I don't want to use neoliberalism. I want to use a word that has connotations that are not specifically political. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but the thought that, that utopia exists is a contradiction in terms. In fact, in fact, what I have, I, you can cut this from your, you're going to need to edit me out of a lot of this. <laughs> We're going to oh, edit us out and have it oh, all be you. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. When I start to say, oh, on utopia, I've created an alter ego, Thea Shiloh. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, she's going to be writing dispatches from Utopia from the planet, whatever the name is, that Steve gave me that is 26 million trillion miles away. And in that, at some point, I think it's my third or fourth dispatch from her, I have her say that utopia is not without its problems. We have our own tensions between our human nature and our desired ability, and we live in constant tension with it. So uh, again, I'm using utopia as a placehold to placate exactly people like you who object to that word, and also to placate all the other people who would say, oh, it's communistic, oh, it's socialistic, oh, it's this, that, and the other thing. It was the only neutral word I could think of. And again, because um, it's a far away and remote place. How are you going to argue? Yeah. I encourage everyone listening to find and read Jack's Dispatches from the Planet Utopia and also your newsletter and your Nobody Asked Me, but I'll tell you anyhow. Both of them are wonderful reading. Your blogs are great. I got to tell you. I've Can we put them. it in the notes for the uh, for the podcast? I think we shall. On our yes. podcast. Yeah, on our to podcast. send people to Jack. Yep. Well, any, yep. any plug you can put in, I'm delighted. No, we'll plug you as much as <laughs> we'll we can. plug you, yeah, you absolutely. Know? We yeah. love you. Yeah. Except that if I couldn't hide behind humor, I would have probably committed suicide. Yep. And I tell people, when I'm being serious, I'm probably right about 50% of the time. I mean, probability theory, you know, what can you do? But yep. when I'm kidding around and being humorous, I'm right 100% of the time because I'm not censoring myself. And my unconscious is probably much closer to being truthful and accurate than my conscious mind. Yep. So Amen. if you plug me, be sure to tell people, when you read me, forget what I wrote on Monday, because on Tuesday, I will have an entirely different opinion. <laughs> And on Wednesday, I will not like either of those two opinions. So enjoy me in the moment, but do not attribute to me any profound, long-term philosophical uh, ramblings. <laughs> well, Jack, we certainly will do that, number one. And number two, we're very, very grateful that you joined us today and shared your thoughts because I just really enjoy talking to you and listening to you. And Ken, I, I think you agree. Same. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And in, in, defen- in defense of your position that you just gave, which is my favorite one, I think it was Emerson, but I'm not sure, who said that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> well, I, I want to return the compliment in the following way. I've been watching your podcast since uh, you introduced them to me. But I've been catching up on all 20. Every time I have some time, I go pick up one of them and look at it. And I don't know when it was, but correct me, maybe three or four podcasts ago, uh, you guys slightly altered the format. And instead of just ending the podcast, you carried on a conversation between the two of you, kind of wrapping it up. Sure. Closure to it. Yeah, we always do. I will tell you that the wrap up and closure is often better than the interview itself. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. High praise indeed, sir. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us. We really love it. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you'll be invited. You're going to get tired. You're going to get sick of it. (laughs) Very good. We are not done. Yes, we're not done. I get sick of rejection. I never get sick of praise. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good night. All right. Take care.
Bye-bye. Steve, what's your response? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is our goal in all this? Is it to win the election, win an argument, gloat, be right? Or is it to have a better country? And a better world. Exactly. I hear a lot of really disturbing things these days. I want to ask our listeners if their goal is to get revenge and show Trump and his supporters who's in charge, or is the goal to find a way forward that avoids violence and makes a better life for our grandkids? Right. And how will we get there? Remember, Jack said respect and gratitude weren't the words he would have used, but he was open to them. He's a leftist historically an extreme leftist, and he's pushing 92 years old, and he has an open mind. And he remembers everything, as he says. Absolutely. And I I think that's all we can ask of everyone on both sides. Humbly have an open mind, show each other respect and gratitude. That's right. As Martin Luther King said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Wow. Important ideas, Steve. I think we need them right now. Join us next time, everybody. Like us on Facebook. We are grateful for your encouragement. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported and we are most grateful for your support. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay open. Yeah, stay open. <laughs>